You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Good morning. You know, over the past year and a half, uh, I've been building a lot of things, uh, mainly things for the nursery before Elijah uh, was born, and it made me really appreciate instructions. You know, look, I'm not one of those furniture whisperers that can like look at an item and go out to my backyard and cut down a tree and build furniture. Right? That's not me. I need places like IKEA. Uh, you know, boy. How important are instructions? I need instructions. That's why IKEA is so good. You know, I'd whip up an IKEA cabinet in no time. Like, it's detailed. It's easy to understand. And then I compare that to other pieces of things that I buy from Enco, Enco brand from Kmart, where the instructions are so vague. They're like brain teasers. And the font is like size two. And the sketches are nothing like what you've bought. I've actually got the wrong instructions before in an Enco brand product. And it's all written on butcher's paper, and the paper's already ripped when you open it. Very first world, and I sound very pompous like now. Oh, Koi doesn't like Anko. I actually love Anko. My full name is Unkoi, so it's very similar to Anko, right? But it definitely made me appreciate how important instructions are when it comes to building something, right? In our passage today, that's exactly what we're looking at. We see instructions to the Israelites to build the tabernacle. See, Exodus chapter 25 to 31 are chapters filled uh, with the meticulous elements and measurements that will make up the tabernacle and all the items within it. And in these chapters, we see the beautiful and purposeful designs of the Ark of the Covenant, the golden lampstand, the altars, each described with the precise detail that they be built in the exact way. And while we may naturally be tempted to uh, often skim past these chapters when we read, there's actually great importance in what is said in these chapters. There's actually quite a lot of weight in these instructions because these aren't architectural plans that uh, were written up from man, but from the God Yahweh, the same God who was the burning bush talking to Moses, the same God who brought on the plagues to the Egyptians. These, this was the same God who parted the seas that Israel may be delivered. See, the God who was the main character in those blockbuster events of Exodus is the one, is the same one who lays out these thorough instructions to Moses and the Israelites to build. 
He says in verse 9 of chapter 25, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. You know, safe to say that if the God Yahweh says this to you, you best do exactly as he says. But we have to ask, what exactly is the significance of such a building? What is the purpose for God laying out such careful instruction for, for such a thing to even be built? Just before the verse, in verse 8, God tells us, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. See, God's presence has been a big theme in our series in Exodus. Uh, we've seen pictures all throughout of, of God intervening with people in various ways, you know, through, through a burning bush that spoke to Moses, through a cloud that led Israel uh, as they left Egypt, or more recently as a thick, smoky cloud that wrapped atop Mount Sinai. These were examples of close encounters between God and his people. They were moments where God could be seen, not fully, but in a limited capacity, one where the physical presence of God was made known to Moses and Israel. But while these encounters were close, they were still very distant, right? With most of the encounters being for Moses only as he represented his people, which is what makes Exodus 25 verse 8 he is so special. This is God saying now to all of Israel, I'm coming down to you. What Moses experienced on, at the top of Mount Sinai, you will experience right where you reside. I will live with you. My presence will go along as you go along. See, ever since leaving Egypt, the, the Israelites were a mobile people, moving across the wilderness in search of the, the land promised to them in the Abrahamic covenant. Sorry. And so as a moving people, they would live in tents, pitched wherever they'd, kinda, that, wherever they'd stop and rest, packed up whenever they were back on the move. So when God tells, here, tells his people to build a sanctuary for him, to build this tabernacle, God is telling him to build him this tent in which he will reside. This is God's tent where he will dwell in their midst. God is essentially saying to Israel, this will be my home among you. See, the covenant-keeping, sovereign, almighty God who had rescued them, defeated their enemies and called them to holiness will now be living in their midst. See, this is huge. That's a huge thing. Theologian Philip Ryken says, one of the main things God wanted his people to see was that the tabernacle was a piece of heaven on earth. So knowing this, we should now see just how weighty these next few chapters are because these aren't just verses centred on uh, units and materials, but these are chapters that emphasise God's relationship with his people. What's in view in our passage today is relationship. The building of the tabernacle is a significant moment in Israel's history. It's where the relationship dynamics between an almighty God, an almighty deliverer God, with his people shifts. God would live with his people, the first earthly residence for heaven's mighty king. The tabernacle would become an earthly symbol of a greater heavenly reality. And it all centred on this relationship. See, as we dig into these chapters and observe the various elements and uh, detail in what God tells his people to build in this tent of his, what I see is that it first has us looking back. So before we dig in, let, let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that we come here together as a church family, Lord. Uh, may you help us open our hearts to hear your word in truth 
and we, Father, take away any words of mine, Lord, and make it only yours that remain, that your word may challenge, may encourage, may convict us, Lord, and uh, we're so thankful that we have your word to guide us. And pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll just move the mic a bit, hearing a bit of things. So we're just a bit over, uh, we're just a bit over halfway through uh, the book of Exodus now in terms of chapters, and something that's been evident uh, through this book is that there have been many themes that have alluded back to the book of Genesis. We think of things like the Mosaic Covenant, here reminding us of the covenant made with Abraham back in Genesis, or maybe the plagues that we went through a few weeks back, being a sort of decreation in comparison to, to creation in Genesis. See, from the very first page of Exodus, it has been evident that there are numerous links back to the book of Genesis. And what I want to suggest here, that in our chapters today, we see the same. And what's particularly in view here is the creation account. Why I say this is because there are actually a few things in these chapters that echo the creation account, something which I think is quite intentional. First, we have something that has been picked up by by many commentators for centuries now, and it's the phrase, the Lord said to Moses, as God instructs his people to build his tabernacle. Now, we're covering six chapters, so... I'm going to be kind of jumping around a bit. But it's the phrase, the Lord said to Moses, as seen between chapters 25 and 31. We see it first here in chapter 25, verse 1, and it will be said another six times later in chapters 30 and 31. And this is significant. Why this is significant is because the words in Hebrew are the same as the words when God spoke the universe into existence in the creation account. In Genesis 1, we see seven times the words, and God said which is matched here in Exodus seven times as well, each time with God initiating the creation of something by his word. And commentators have pointed out that there's a clear mirroring in the command to build the tabernacle and the seven-day creation narrative through the instructing of God's word. Another clear echo is what we read in Exodus 31, verse 12 to 13. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. So in these chapters describing the instructions to to build the tabernacle, in chapter 31, it climaxes with God's command for them to enjoy enjoy Sabbath rest which has clear parallels with the creation account in Genesis 2, where God, after creating the universe and everything in it, would conclude with rest on the seventh day. See, theologian Peter N. says, it seems clear that the purpose of this arrangement is to aid the reader in making the connection between the building of the tabernacle and the seven days of creation, both of which involve six creative acts culminating in a seventh-day rest. So there... uh, uh, Evident echoes here to the creation account with the building of the tabernacle. And there's a few other things that allude to it as well, such as the language and the sentiments seen all throughout these six chapters and key moments and the materials in these Exodus chapters that replicate those in Genesis. But after observing all these connections, we have to ask ourselves, why does the author want us to look back to the creation narrative in this tabernacle building? Well, remember I said earlier that God was instructing his people uh, to build this tabernacle as as a place that he would dwell in their midst. 
that this was about God's presence with his people. Why I think the tabernacle so clearly alludes to the creation account is because the last time that there was this beautiful relationship between God's physical presence with his people, where God indeed dwelled among his people, was all the way back at the beginning creation in the Garden of Eden. It was at the beginning in creation where humanity resided in the presence of a God in their garden home of Eden. God had placed the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, in a place where there was plenty of provision next to the security and safety of of this intimate presence of their creator, God. It was, in other words, perfect, good, as God saw it. And this would have naturally reminded the Israelites of the very reason of why they were graciously given a tabernacle in the first place. It's because in Eden, also in Eden, Eden is where the relationship between God and humanity was fractured. It was in this same garden where humanity roamed with God that the first humans rejected God. It was here that Adam and Eve would fall, sinning, and were exiled from God, exiled by God from Eden. Genesis 3. Therefore the Lord sent him, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he, had, he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. See, what the tabernacle does in pointing the Israelites back is that it reminds them that there was a relationship rift that began all the way in Eden. With the fall, the relationship once shared between the creator God and his created people would be fractured, a rift that came about as a consequence of the sin of man. Adam and Eve were exiled, no longer able to go anywhere and meet God as if they were in the garden. But instead, now they were far east of Eden, with sin marring the world, affecting all of humanity as their sinful generations would roam further and further away from Eden. And ever since then, humanity, um, author Tim Chester has pointed out that there has been a deep sense of dislocation and rootlessness that humanity has a a deep longing for this once glorious relationship with their maker. We try to find purpose and fulfilment in anything and everything we can. We see that all around us today, relationship after relationship with people, hoping for perfection and fulfilment in that person, purpose in work, in finances, in family, in materials. Israel knew that ever since the relationship between uh, creation and the creator had been severed, it's been a long search to regain it. And yet, while banished from this once glorious relationship, God did not abandon his people. As we've seen all throughout Exodus, this is the God who would initiate his relationship to his people out of his grace and his love. It wasn't a relationship lost, but rather the relationship once shared in Eden was now different. People could not as easily come before the presence of God, which is why we've read of God's presence through a burning bush or through the cloud on Mount Sinai or through altar worship, which is why these chapters we're in today are so important because seeing how the tabernacle points back to Eden, here God is saying to Israel that through this tabernacle they will build, they will experience this glorious relationship once shared between God and humanity. Peter N says the tabernacle was an an earthly representation of a heavenly reality. 
It was a microcosm of the created order, hence a microcosm of the only spotless point in creation, Eden. See, with God instructing the Israelites to worship him through the tabernacle, it tells us of a God who wants a relationship with his people, so much so that he would be the one who initiates this intimacy with his people by coming down to them and dwelling with them. See, while in the beginning the Garden of Eden was essentially a piece of heaven on earth, here in Exodus 25 to 31, God is instructing his people to build a structure that reflects the same thing, a place where heaven and earth meets. See, in all its intricacies and meticulous detail, the tabernacle was a symbol of something higher, something quite mysterious, really. Yet as we're seeing, it was truly the means by which God and his people connected. And so hearing this, while it might be tempting to imagine that the tabernacle uh, is, being a, is like a place that contained God, like God's tent is a box that, that God was stored in and called upon, with the many allusions to creation in the tabernacle, I think for the Israelites, it actually would have done the opposite. It would have reminded them that they were dealing with Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth, that this wasn't a structure that constrained God's presence to one place, but rather Israel was given access to God's presence as he graciously chose to dwell in their one place. And as we look into more detail, we'll see more clearly that the tabernacle represented a relationship re-established. So one of the places I've visited that I remember most in my life is probably the 9-11 memorial in New York. It's located where the towers used to stand. And I remember walking through and just being struck by how silent and solemn the place was. All around New York City, if you know, you might have seen it or you've been there yourself, it is a hustling, bustling city. Concrete jungle, loud everywhere you go, cabs honking everywhere. But in this open space park, this particular area, it was quiet, silent. It's an open space park filled with the names of all the victims and there were hundreds of people gathered there with a real aura of, of solemnness and, and respect. And reading through these chapters and seeing the instructions laid out in building the tabernacle, I'd imagine for Moses and the Israelites that there would have been an even greater sense of respect and solemnness in this all. I mean, this was to be the dwelling place of the creator God, the covenant-keeping, deliverer, holy God. We'd imagine the aura from such a structure would have been immense, a holy aura. And with quite a few chapters specifying the structure itself, I'm not going to be able to go through uh, each detail with you today. I really recommend that you take the time to read, uh, if you haven't already, to dig into these chapters of the building of the tabernacle. But what I can do is give us a, a visual aid to help us envision such a structure as the tabernacle. So reading how it was described and looking at this visually, there are some things that stood out for me. Now notice that there are three kinds of clear, there are three clear areas, the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. See what this three-part structure of the tabernacle does is remind us of the events of Mount Sinai recently, where in Exodus chapter 24, the covenant was confirmed. And as God called them to worship, it was clear that there were three areas in a sense. Look what it says in verse 24. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. 
Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. See, God's presence was atop Mount Sinai in chapter 24 here, and he commands that the majority of Israel were to remain at the bottom at quite a distance, while the priests and elders were able to come up and worship from afar, and only Moses alone was permitted to go up to approach the Lord. See, what this did in Exodus 24 was set a pattern a pattern that we see reflected here in the construction of the tabernacle. Similarly here, the outer court is where uh, the common worshippers would have access to. Then it would be only priests that could enter the holy place and finally separated by a large dividing veil was the holy of holies where only the high priest was able to enter. See, we're not going to go into the function of the priesthood today as uh, Lee, one of the lay pastors here at Melbourne West, uh, preached wonderfully on this last week. So check out that podcast if you haven't on the priesthood. It was wonderful. But what is significant that we see here today is this pattern, that these, there's these sorts of degrees of holiness. It moves from lesser to greater holiness as you get closer. The same gradation we saw on Mount Sinai. On Mount Sinai, it was like this as you came closer to the presence of God atop the mountain, so it is the same here. With the Holy of Holies being the central place where God's presence was, a common worshipper couldn't simply rock up in their jeans and just stride on through into the most holy place. There was order. There were limits. There were rules. See, what we read of God reestablishing his relationship with his people through the building of the tabernacle, there are still limitations to this because the Israelites were dealing with with a holy God, or they themselves were sinners. See, God initiated this shift in relationship by coming down to dwell with Israel in their home, but they were to worship him on his terms. God in his holiness, purity, goodness, allowed his people to come into his presence, not the other way around. And so it took such scrupulous measures to enter into his presence because in the presence of a holy God, sin had no part. See, while it could be tempting for us as readers to imagine this as unnecessarily strict, we have to understand that for the Israelites, this was truly an honour and a privilege. Even though worshipping him in his presence required such careful instruction, this was grace given by God. Israel were living amidst one like no other, the God Yahweh, a holy God, which is why we see it reflected in, in the splendor and the beauty of the materials used. As you read those chapters, you see precious metals and stones, fine fabrics. These were precise and perfect dimensions, not your Kmart Anko, you know, instruction kind of deals. But what the tabernacle did was symbolize uh, the holiness of God. It depicted the goodness of God and his created world. Writers have described it as a sense of order amid chaos. Chaos in that this was a fallen, sinful world. So amidst this fallen world, God in his grace would undertake another act of creation in this tabernacle, a symbol that does nothing but remind God's people of a return to pre-fall splendor. One writer says, the tabernacle, therefore, is laden with redemptive significance, not just because of the sacrifices and offerings within its walls, but simply because of what it is, a piece of holy ground amid a world that has lost its way. 
This was God's holy presence come down to dwell among a sinful people, a relationship reestablished on the basis of the grace of God. Yet in the presence of a holy God, it required a holy approach, which is why we're reading, when we read through, we get a lot of specific details that required careful construction. There was beauty, there's magnificence, there was order in how things and what things were built, a reflection of the splendor of God. So things had to be done carefully and properly. The altars, the lampstand, the table of bread, we read of these in great detail in these chapters. But perhaps the most notable furnishing that God instructs the Israelites to build is the only one that was kept in the holy of holies, the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant, which is described in chapter 25. See, when you think of popular locations, what's often the first image that uh, they'll, they'll use to draw people in? It's often whatever's the main attraction in a sense, right? You think of the Louvre in Paris, will likely be the Mona Lisa. You'll probably see brochures with the Mona Lisa at the front kind of thing. Or the MCG will be the footy. Or the greatest zoo in Australia, the Adelaide Zoo, where you can see Wang Wang and Funi, the giant pandas, right? It's the best place. They'll be the main attractions. See, these are the centrepieces for these places, in a sense, the centrepieces. In chapter 25, verse 9, after God's initial instruction to build exactly what he says in concern to the tabernacle, it would have made complete sense for the following verses to be about the tabernacle itself, right? But what's interesting is what immediately follows after God tells Moses, build my tabernacle, what immediately follows isn't the details for the tabernacle, but details for the ark. And there's something significant in this. It's like the author wants to stress the importance of the ark. Theologian Durham says that the ark is the supreme Sinai symbol of the presence of Yahweh. It's in other words, the centerpiece item. Our attention is immediately drawn to the ark. It is the central concern of the tabernacle narrative. It's no wonder archaeologists, Indiana Jones, were so keen to find the ark and not the wash basin, right? It all, it's important. The ark is a huge thing. In all seriousness, the ark is crucial because it is the focus of God's presence with his people. It marks the central point of contact between heaven and earth. And this is made evident as we take a deeper look into the instructions given in building the ark. It says, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall take two cherubim of gold of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. The ark was in simplest terms a box or a chest of God's design made with the finest metals and, and carefully crafted imagery. And looking at the verses I just read out, it, just, it would be covered with a mercy seat, basically the lid of the box, uh, which had on it two gold cherubim sculptures facing each other on each side of the mercy seat. This would have brought on imagery to the Israelites that wasn't, that wasn't all too foreign, might be a bit foreign to us, but not to the Israelites as cherubim were often regarded as heavenly beings that lived in the presence of God, worshipping him day and night. So here we have a symbolic representation of God's heavenly dwelling. And so with the presence of the cherubim all over, there was an emphasis on the holiness of the ark. 
I mean, we know right, we might know of the fateful story of the Uzzah who tried to catch the ark later on as it fell while it was being transported, transported and he touched it and he died. This was an extremely holy ark. God's holiness was emphasized. But there was more to it than just an aura of holiness from the ark. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. See, while the lid gets gets such a translation as mercy seat, which was coined by Martin Luther, is because it comes from the same Hebrew word, which means atonement. Leviticus 16 tells us that once a year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and he would atone for both his sins and the sins of Israel uh, by sprinkling blood, the blood of a sacrificed animal on this mercy seat as a way to appease the wrath and anger of God for their sins. And it was in those days that this was, this would become the only place where this atonement could take place. And so it was here at the ark that atonement was made between God and his people that God would accept and forgive the sins of Israel as they offered up a sacrifice in place of what sin required in front of a holy God. Verse 22 tells us that just above the mercy seat, uh, uh, seat upon the cherubim is where God will meet with them, the appointed person, the high priest, and it is where he will speak to his people Israel. See, this imagery of God above the cover and between the cherubim is quite interesting as it paints for us a picture that is seen in various other passages in the Bible as well. Look at Psalm 99. It says, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. Or Second Kings, As Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth you have made heaven and earth. The imagery that God is enthroned between the cherubim. See, commentators alike have said it is like the top of the ark was God's heavenly throne while the ark itself is his footstool. This was an elaborate yet deliberate earthly symbol of a heavenly reality. What this does, what this says to us is it tells us that the ark was the centre of gravity of God's presence with his people. Theologian Andrew Reid says, the ark itself conveyed that the center of Israelite religions was represented by a box with the tablets of testimony in it. Israel was a nation who was in covenant relationship with Yahweh. Here God dealt with sin and was present among his people. It was here at the ark that Israel stood in front of their king. This is the point where God's throne in heaven touches the earth. I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites, it says in verse 22. It's where God would reign over his people. This was a relationship reestablished as God would give access to his people, his throne room from where he reigns in heaven, reflected in the holy of holies. And it was in his footstool, the ark, that God would have his covenant laws, which we've looked at a few chapters ago, written on stone tablets placed. It says in verse 21, And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. The ark would hold the terms of God's relationship with Israel, the law for their lives as a holy nation who belonged to a holy God. It was like the law was placed under God's feet. And that that was quite fitting 
as it was a solemn reminder for the Israelite representative that each time they were in the presence of God, they were reminded to observe the covenant that their king had initiated with them. See, as we can see, these were extremely elaborate, careful, detailed, intentional list of instructions that God commanded the Israelites to construct. And it's because we see here that the Israelites were dealing with a God who is indeed holy. Philip Ryken says, the reason God was so attentive to detail was that this building was designed to teach something about his character and about what it means to have a relationship with him. This is a holy God. See, even though there was a relationship rift between God and man because of man's sin, God wanted to reestablish his relationship with his people by giving them a glimpse of this once perfect union. See, the tabernacle was such a significant part of Israel's history. It was where God's presence would manifest in a special way. And it was where atonement was made. But if we continued in the Bible, we see that it was never meant to be the permanent sanctuary. I mean, it was a tent, something mobile, which already pointed to a temporary dwelling. So later it would become more static, more stationary as the tabernacle and how Israel worshipped God was moved to a temple. More permanent as Israel could worship God at a fixed place of the temple. But even then, the temple too was insufficient. Because although God did accept the blood of the animals offered there as a covering for sin, The repetitive nature of Israel's offering of sacrifices made it clear that what was done was not enough to solve the problem of Israel's sin. As long as the tabernacle and the temple stood, God's people were reminded that sin had not been conclusively dealt with. There was something more permanent required. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This word that the gospel of John is referring to is none other than Jesus Christ. And in verse 14, where it says he dwelt among us, in its original Greek, it translates to he tabernacled among us. See, while in Exodus, God laid out his careful plans for his people to construct a piece of heaven on earth to reestablish a a once beautiful relationship. In Jesus, God has initiated a rescue plan for his people in sending his son from heaven to earth to redeem his relationship. What the building of the tabernacle did was point forward to a relationship redeemed. It foreshadowed something better, that Jesus would be the new, the improved, the better tabernacle and temple. Again, in verse 14, it said, We have seen His glory, the presence of God, His glory that was above the ark in the Holy of Holies, the glory and holy presence in which a priest alone could only have access to once a year would come 
and walked the streets of Jerusalem, talking, teaching, healing, calling, living among humanity. Not just the peace of heaven on earth, but God himself on earth. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. This is what the structures, buildings, and furnishings that God instructed Israel to build were ultimately pointing to. And what's amazing is Jesus' coming did not dull the majesty of the Old Testament tabernacle, but rather Jesus' coming, he heightened what it stood for. We may not get the beautifully crafted structures or the carefully constructed furnishings, but in Jesus, we get something far better. While the tabernacle meant only a few could come into the presence of God while the others remained at a distance, Jesus, God's son, went out to the others that they could come close to him. See, while the ark contained the covenant law which the Israelites continuously failed to uphold, Jesus, the law, lived the law we could not, fulfilling the law and bringing on a new covenant in him. While the mercy seat required a continuous blood sacrifice on behalf of sinners to satisfy the holy God, the holy God in Jesus gave up his blood on behalf of sinners as the one sacrifice for all time out of his mercy, dying on the cross. See, the tabernacle represented a heavenly reality on earth. It was a relationship reestablished between God and his people. But even in the beauty and magnificence of the structure, the reality was it was a place so full of promise and so full of danger. It promised a relationship with God, but a veil prevented it as sinners couldn't possibly survive an encounter with a holy God. Jesus, in the ninth hour, hanging on the cross, cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. As Jesus breathed his last breath, the veil that kept people out of the presence of God in the Holy of Holies was torn in two. The way to God was now open. It was no longer through a portable tabernacle or a stationary temple, but it was through a person, a saviour who redeemed an entire people to their creator, not just for Israel, but for you and me today. And this saviour who after being raised from the dead, Jesus promised his followers before ascending to his father, I am with you always to the end of the age. And this is a wonderful promise to followers of Jesus, that his presence has not left his people. But even better, he has sent his spirit to abide with us. Romans 8 verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, actually his spirit abides in us, dwells in us. Andrew Reed says, this spirit brings Christ to us and us to Christ. He lives in us individually and corporately and we have been raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. This means for believers alike today, we have the presence of God abiding in us. What a wonderful and weighty truth to grasp. 
wonderful because it means we are not at a distance, unable to be in his presence, but quite the opposite as God has taken up residence in us through his Holy Spirit. Weighty because it means the same glorious God enthroned in the Holy of Holies with the ark as his footstool is the same God who abides in you and I and has given us new life. 1 Corinthians 3, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? Jesus came and redeemed a relationship where it is no longer the tabernacle that reflects the order and beauty of God amid the chaos of this world, but it is us in how we live, in how we worship him. So church, ask yourselves, do you live as though under the reign of this almighty king who has taken residence in you? So to conclude, that the building of the tabernacle in all its wonderful intricacies and detail is all about relationship. God reminds us the relationship we once shared with him. He gives the Israelites a glimpse of it and fulfills it with something better in his son, Jesus. But there's one element that it points forward even further to. See, in Jesus' sacrifice, he has gone ahead of us into the holy of holies, the most holy place, but not the man-made earthly tabernacle copy, but the one true most holy place of heaven. Hebrews 9 verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. See, when Jesus made his sacrifice, he took it not only into, he took it not into some earthly tabernacle, but into the throne room of God in heaven. And once Jesus presented his sacrifice, the way was open for everyone who believes in him and trusts in him to go and meet with God. The book of Hebrews would later say on in chapter 10 that we can have confidence to enter the most holy place because the blood of Jesus has opened for us the way. Jesus' sacrifice secured an eternal redemption that whoever shall believe in him can one day, when he returns again, that we can enter into the most holy place, the throne room of God in heaven, not just for a moment, but for eternity. The relationship once seen in Eden will be fully realised as all believers will dwell in the new garden city in the presence of our Saviour, King. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of relationship. We thank you that you are an almighty God who chose to dwell with your people. We see it here as 
as you allowed Israel to get a glimpse of uh, your magnificent presence through the tabernacle, which was in of, in of self an act of grace as we had chosen to live in sin and reject your relationship so many times. But, Father, we thank you mostly that this was not the final plan, but you had something else for us, something far better. For you gave us a saviour in Jesus who could do what we could not and be the sacrifice for our sins once for all time, that we have a relationship redeemed by his blood. Lord, help us trust wholeheartedly in Jesus to hold fast to his promise that he is with us till the end. May the Holy Spirit change us, shape us, grow us more and more into the likeness of Christ. And may we daily hold on to the hope of the eternity to come in your intimate presence forever. Lord, we praise you and thank you for you are so good to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.